we are in a series that we have entitled Unafraid. And we're walking verse by verse through Psalm 23. And for most of us, Psalm 23 is a very familiar psalm. It's, it's, it's probably next to John 3.16, as we've said, probably the most well-known passage of Scripture uh, that is in the Bible. And, and you could be someone who doesn't even believe in Jesus Christ and be familiar with Psalm 23. And so what we've been looking at in this psalm is this reality that our security is found in the Lord, our shepherd. That's really what this psalm is about. And understanding the character of our shepherd, that he's trustworthy, who he is, his character, that what he says he will do, his character, his competency, that what he says he actually has the means and the power to accomplish, his capacity, that nothing we encounter in our lives is greater than who he is. And so really what we're striving for in Psalm 23 is living in the security that is found in the description of the Lord as our shepherd. And in reminding ourselves of that, in realizing maybe for the first time that what are found in this, in this psalm is truly what we can experience in our lives, that we will live lives, not that we won't face fear, but we won't be paralyzed by it when it comes because we understand who our shepherd is. We understand who the one is that we should follow. And our prayer from the very beginning of opening up these pages and turning to Psalm 23 is that we would really believe, really see, really live in a fresh way what God's word says in this psalm and who our shepherd is. And so... We've been encouraging you to, to uh, take this card, and if you didn't get one of these cards and, you're, and, and you haven't yet grabbed one of them, they're at our welcome uh, kiosk right under the TVs when you came into our lobby, and I encourage you to grab one, put it on a refrigerator, put it anywhere where you'll see it every day. We've been encouraging, if you haven't had this memorized, to memorize this, and so we've been challenging you to take a verse every week as we unpack it and memorize it, and so... I would probably say I have Psalm 23 memorized. I have it memorized in different versions, but I have it memorized. And, and maybe that's true of you, but man, I've, I've been keeping this in the forefront of my mind, obviously because I've been studying it. But really, there has not been a week that has not gone by that I haven't had to remind myself of what is in these verses that we have looked at. And I'm sure the same is of you. So hopefully you're in Psalm 23, and we are going to read this psalm together out loud as we have every week. And I encourage you, if you have the first two verses memorized, because that's what we've looked at up to this point in this series, for you to say them without looking at your Bibles. And if you have to look at your Bibles, that's okay as well. But would you begin reading with me in verse one? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Would you pray with me as I pray out loud? Lord, we are here today to remind ourselves that you are our good shepherd. Some of us may be in this room today and we've walked in here and we don't believe that. And God, I'm so thankful that that categorizes someone that they are here today. Lord, we may have had an amazing week this past week, and we thank you for that. We may have experienced some tremendous breakthroughs, been freed from from some, some strongholds that have been in our life in this past week as we've been unpacking this psalm, and we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We credit you for that. And there may be others in this room that have found out something this week or in this last month or in this last year, and it still has them in bondage. And God, we know, we believe, we've seen that you as our good shepherd can also restore those things. And so God, we take whatever it is that we came into this room with today, and we lay it before your word today, believing, knowing, trusting, that when your word is open, your mouth is open. And Lord, we know that you are gonna speak to these things. So Lord, would we be obedient to what you say today? And it's in the mighty name of Jesus, our good shepherd, that we pray, amen. Here's the title of the message this morning, if you're taking notes, and it's this, he restores. We're looking at verse three today. He restores my soul. When you think of that word restore, what you need to understand, many of you maybe realize this, some of you may not, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and sometimes when you look at words, they actually convey a deeper idea of what the word really is in the English. And so this word restore, though it really means the same thing in the English, I think it helps us remind ourselves of really the significance of this phrase He restores my soul. Speaking of the Lord as our good shepherd, it literally means this. It means to return or to bring back. I'm sure probably some of you have taken something that maybe was old and you've gotten it restored, right? And so what's involved in that process? You're getting it restored because you want it to look like it's new again. And so you pay for that restoration to be done. I myself love to watch TV shows where they take old things, whether that be cars or furniture or, or different types of things, and they take it and it looks totally broken down and like a piece of junk, and if you didn't know any better, you'd throw it away, and then throughout the show, what they do is they show the care and the time and all of the things, and at the end of the show, they reveal it, and it looks brand new. I love that stuff. I don't know why. I just love to watch that stuff. And so some of you can identify with that because you've actually gotten something restored. And when you think about what's necessary in restoration, obviously we would first go to there's a cost involved to restore something, right? And usually it's not cheap. There's cost involved. But if you've had something restored, what has motivated you to take the time and the patience and the care, and the money to restore it. It's love for the item, right? It's love for it. It means something to you. And so regardless of the cost, you're willing to pay it. You're willing to take the time. You're willing to take the care. You're willing to exercise patience to see that thing brought back to a new condition. Why? Because you love it. That's what that word restore means. 
And that's what our good shepherd promises to do with us. And so the overarching idea that I want you to get today, just in this small, short verse in verse three is this, that I, that you experience restoration in our lives when the Lord is our shepherd. And I really think that as we look at verse three today, and then we look at verse four when we uh, are in Psalm 23 again, that in verses three and four, we're going to see three ways that the Lord restores. The way that he promises to restore in your life and the way that he promises to restore in my life. We're gonna look just at verse three today where we're gonna see two of those ways in verse three. And so here's the first one. I already mentioned the phrase already where he says, he restores my soul. Who's he? That's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, like the significance of that, the self-existent one, self-sufficient one, the Lord who prom- the one who promises his presence with us, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that is he. He restores my soul. And here's the first way that we experience the Lord's restoration. Number one, we experience spiritually. We experience it spiritually. Because he says he restores my soul. And if you're here today, and this is true of you, I've experienced, and maybe you have experienced, the restoration of my soul spiritually when it comes to my justification. And what I mean by that is there's a point in our life where we've come to the realization that it's not the good that I can do in and of myself to warrant a relationship with a holy, perfect God. We love to think of it that way, that if I do enough good things and my list is long enough and the list of good things is longer than the list of bad things, that hopefully I can have a relationship with a holy God and hopefully when I pass from this life to the next, I will be in heaven with God for all of eternity. And that's how we think. If we even believe in God, that's how we think. But when I understand What it's saying here in verse three that he restores my soul, it makes me think, wait a minute, I have a shepherd, I have a savior who promises the restoration of my soul spiritually in terms of, here's a big word, justification. See, in Romans 3.23, we're told all have sinned. You know what that means? That means you've sinned and I've sinned. I've never run into a person before where I've had to convince them that they're not perfect. Never have. And if I had, I would question their sanity. Never run into that. And Romans 6.23 also tells us that what do I deserve because of that sin? It says, for the wages of sin is death, separation from God for all of eternity. Why? Because God's holy and I'm not. God's perfect and I'm not. Ephesians 2.1, another passage of scripture says, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. By myself, I am without hope. I am a sinner. Isaiah 64, 6 says that when I want to try to justify myself and say, but look at all the good things that I've done. Seriously? Like, I'm way better than a lot of people that I know. It says that all of my righteous good deeds are like a polluted garment before a holy God. 
because he's perfect and he requires perfection in order to have a relationship with me. So that means that in and of myself, I am without hope to ever have a relationship with a perfect holy God. So what do I deserve because of my sin? I deserve judgment, that's Romans 6.23. But Jesus Christ, in his love for me, he came, put on human flesh, lived a perfect life for me that I cannot live, replaced that sinful life with a sinless life, died on the cross for my sin, paying the death that I deserve because of my sin, rose again three days later so that if I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I am justified that God sees me just as if I've never sinned because I haven't, no, because he's seeing me through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection live for me. I've been justified. He's restored my soul through Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 3.23. I referenced it, but listen to verse 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's this word that I mentioned, and are justified, declared innocent by his grace as a gift. What makes a gift a gift? You don't work for it through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I just want you to pause and think. If you're here today and you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ's perfect life and death and resurrection for your sins, just think about that time when you did that. Just think about it. For me, I was five years old. Some of you are like, man, how much bad stuff can you do from zero to five? Well, you can lie. and Remember, what did we say? One sin causes me to be void of acceptance of a holy God. So your testimony may be different than mine. And listen, it's not about comparing testimonies because every testimony is God's grace story in your life. For me, I was five years old. And I don't remember a lot when I was five, but I remember this as clear as a bell. I remember being on a hospital, my dad's a pastor, I remember being on a hospital visit with my mom and dad tagging along in Indiana at the time where he was pastoring. And I remember only as a five-year-old can and a child like mine being overwhelmed that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. And I remember asking my parents, I need to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I remember my parents taking me home. I remember us going upstairs in the two-story house that we had in Indiana. And I remember kneeling beside my Sesame Street bed sheets and asking Jesus to be my Savior. That's my story. That is when in my life, Jesus restored my soul. He justified me through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection for my sins. And listen to me, if you're here today and you've never done that, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that the reason why you are here today is because your shepherd wants you to understand that he desires to restore your soul. He desires, he loves you. He wants you to stop trying to earn his favor and see that it's an endless, hopeless process without accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He wants to restore your soul spiritually. He wants to justify you, to declare you innocent before a holy God. And for those of us who have done that, here's what else we need to remind ourselves of, that Jesus just doesn't, our good shepherd just doesn't, 
cause us to experience restoration spiritually in terms of our justification. But here's the other piece, that when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit resides within me and my sanctification now begins to take hold and take place. What do I mean by that? It's an ongoing process of me becoming more and more like Jesus, me more and more saying no to the things that I used to do and saying yes to what God's word says in my life that I start to begin to have desires more to do what the Lord wants me to do rather than to do what I used to do. That's sanctification. So when I look at this phrase, he restores my soul, it causes me to say, man, my good shepherd wants me to experience his restoration spiritually, and part of that is my sanctification. Because we love to stray, don't we? Yeah, even me. We love to stray, we love to, even after putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, get ourselves thinking that our way is better than the Lord's way. But see, the sanctification, what the Lord does is he, he's there when we fall flat on our face to restore us back into right, right relationship with him. It was interesting, I've been doing a lot of study about sheep you know, and uh, probably not something that's on the top of your list, but, you know, I've been reading some different books and different things. We actually have people that used to raise sheep in our, in our church, and so I've been asking them, like, okay, I read this. Is this true? And, like, this is how much I'm wanting to make sure that what I'm telling you is, is right in regards to sheep. Um, Philip Keller, in his book, he writes a commentary on Psalm 23, and he was a shepherd. He explains this idea of restoration when a sheep wants to stray or is stuck. He explains this by a situation known to the shepherds as this phrase, cast sheep. It's interesting, listen to this. It says it's a very pathetic sight. So what a sheep does is it gets itself lying on its back with its feet in the air and it flails away frantically struggling to stand up. So evidently, whether it's lying on the side of a hill or some way, a sheep will get itself to where it's rolled over on its back and its feet are up in the air and it can't get himself back on his feet. And in my mind, I'm like, seriously, dude, just roll over. But for whatever reason, a sheep goes into absolute chaos. And it says if the owner does not arrive on the scene with a reasonable, within a reasonable short amount of time, the sheep will die on its back when it probably is like, well, you got to that place. Why can't you get yourself back? But here's the significance. How often is that true of us? We get ourselves in a situation because we've strayed away from our good shepherd and we need restoration but we feel like we're so far in the forest that we can't see the trees and we're like, God, how do I even get out of this? How did I get here? Turn to Luke 15. Keep your finger in Psalm 23. I've made reference to this passage of Scripture before, but I want to read it again. Because after all, we're in Psalm 23. The Lord is being illustrated as a shepherd. Jesus says he's ministering on this earth, often refers to himself as a shepherd, and he does this in Luke 15. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write Luke 15, four through seven, right next to verse three in Psalm 23. It says this, Jesus says this, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
Rhetorical question, answer, nobody in their right mind would leave 99 sheep for one sheep. No one. Look at what it says, verse five. Jesus is trying to get across the idea, no one. But Jesus is like, I will. Verse five, and when, the, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now let's stop there. So let's just get with this illustration. 99 sheep, I got all of these sheep and I've lost one, but Jesus talks about this shepherd that would actually seek out the one and when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders like he doesn't drag it by the neck. He puts it on his shoulders and he's so happy. So think about it. Don't raise your hand to this because I don't want you to admit that maybe your parenting skills aren't a A plus. How many of you have ever lost your kid? In a crowd. I remember when we lived in Florida and we would oftentimes, you know, go to Disney. And I remember when our kids were younger, we would always have a place that if they got misplaced, they would go to that place. And I remember we'd be like, all right, we're passing this flagpole. If you can't find us, go to this flagpole and being like, where do you go? The flagpole. Where? The flagpole. One more time. Where? The flagpole. Now, I don't remember ever losing our kids in a theme park, but I do remember at times misplacing them in the store. Right? Can you relate? Think about that time. Like when that happens and you look around and your child is nowhere to be found and what immediately comes to your mind, just absolute panic, right? Where are they? Who took them? I'll never see them again, whatever it is. And honestly, those are, those are thoughts because you love your child and so you're searching all over the place and it gets worse and worse by every second that ticks where you can find that child, right? Some of you are getting anxiety just thinking about that. But think about it. Maybe this is just true of me. In those times where I've looked around for, for my kids and I haven't been able to find them in a store or whatever, and then I finally find them. They're completely calm, but I, I find them. And what, this is, I can't say that I've done this, where I look at them, I'm like, ah, oh, it's so good to see you. And you give them a big hug and you give them a big kiss and you pick them up and say, I'm so happy that I've found you. Now what do you do? Don't ever leave me again. <laughs> what were you thinking? Right? Don't leave me up here by myself. (laughs) Because they scared you so much that rather than welcoming them and and just being like, oh, I'm so glad I found you. And it's like chastisement. Scaring them into submission so they never do that again. And why? the reason why I give that illustration, because do you see the shepherd's response here? He doesn't say, why did you wander away? What were you thinking? You're so stupid. Remember what we said about sheep? They're dumb. Like the shepherd doesn't remind them as Jesus gives us, I'm gonna remind you that you're dumb and you're stupid and you need me desperately. For all circumstances, you already know that when you're in a ditch. I don't need to remind you that you shouldn't have wandered away. Do I? I don't. I've never needed to be reminded when I'm in a ditch that I'm in a ditch. But what I love here is what does Jesus do? Puts the sheep on his shoulder. He says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to drag you by the collar to the place that I want. No, no, no. I'm going to take you there myself. I'm going to put you on my shoulder. And I'm going to rejoice along the way that I found you. 
And not only am I going to rejoice, but I'm going to throw a party. Look at what it says, verse 7, or verse 6. He says, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. So just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Some of us are in here and we're so self-righteous and we don't realize that we're in a ditch. But our self-righteousness has caused us in a ditch. And listen, if that's you this morning, what the Lord wants you to be reminded is he restores your soul. He wants you to be brought to a place where you realize that you need his sanctification. You need to repent of your sin, and he's there with arms wide open. But those of you who are here today, and you know you're in the ditch, and you feel like you're on your back like one of those cast sheep, and you're not able to roll yourself yourself over, listen to me this morning. You have a Savior who loved you enough to die for you, but you also have a Savior who loves you enough to rescue you and to restore you. No one's ever too far gone from God's long arm of grace. We have people in this church that marriages were absolutely in the ditch last year, that had absolutely no hope, and would testify to you today of God's restoration in their life. There are people today that have those stories. So don't think to yourself, even in this moment where it seems on your, like you're on your back, that Psalm 23.3 is not true for you. He wants to restore you. I love Philippians 1.6. We looked at this in the fall as we walked through the book of Philippians. He who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, that if God justified me, saved me, declared me righteous before a holy God because I put his, my trust in him and not in the good that I've done, but in the perfection that he's accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, why should I believe that the Lord is just gonna allow me to wander on my own? Listen to me. God gave you a brain. God's even reminding you right now, turn and come back to me. I'm not gonna tell you I told you so and wag my finger, but I wanna restore you. See, he restores us spiritually. Here's the second way that we experience his restoration. Because listen to me, when Jesus finds his sheep, when you're restored spiritually, when you're like, okay, Lord, I'm gonna stop living my life and I see where it's got me and I want to allow you to be my shepherd. Listen to me, he just doesn't, he just doesn't cause us to be found, but then he's able to lead us. Lead us where? Lead us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That's what verse three says. So here's a second way that I experience his restoration. Directionally, he guides me. He directs me. Don't raise your hand on this, but just think about it. How many paths have we wandered in our lives that would be described as anything but paths of righteousness? Maybe you described as paths of wrongdoing. Maybe it's broken relationships. Maybe there's regret that you have in your life. Maybe there's shame. Maybe there's guilt why we've taken so much time to remind ourselves of the restoration that's found in our shepherd spiritually. Because when I'm spiritually restored, then I'm postured in such a way that can be led 
to the paths that my shepherd wants me to experience. Because listen to me, restoration directionally means this, that I have to be postured in such a way that I am saying daily, where you lead, I will follow. You're the shepherd, I'm the sheep. When we get into ditches in our life, it's because we have gotten ourselves to think that where I go, Lord, you're supposed to follow. I know that's what your word says, but I wanna do this. I know that's what your word says in this area, but I wanna do this. And every time we experience a dead end in our lives, it's because we have wandered away from the shepherd who wants us to lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Because we're just like sheep. It's interesting, I'm studying about sheep. They can literally wander away from where the shepherd is leading them. If, even if they see like a bush with berries or something on it and it's on the edge of a cliff, they're not thinking to themselves, I gotta be real careful here because the reason why the shepherd's not leading me to that bush is because I will go over the cliff. You know what the sheep will do? They'll just go right over the cliff. Because they have in their minds that they know what's better than the shepherd. They're self-sufficient. And isn't that true of you and me? I don't have anybody in my life that would disagree that I don't struggle with self-sufficiency. Thank God for those good friends. Curious. I want to get my audience. You can raise your hand for this one. I've asked a lot of questions that I don't want you to raise your hand up. How many of you would say, I am a planner? Raise your hand. Look at that. All my peoples. All my peoples. How many, now, now you're not going to want to raise your hand, but... How many of you would say, man, I love, I'm not, I like ambiguity. How many of you would say that? Raise your hand. Be proud of that. Be proud of that. All right. A few of you. Like, I kind of like ambiguity. Like, the planners are already judging you right now. Not me. Planners are already judging you right now, but here's the reality. Whether you're a planner and you have to have everything spelled out and you're like, man, I know what to do here. I know what to do there. I'm going to make my plans here. I'm going to make my plans there. Or you like to live in ambiguity and you're like, you know what? Here's my plan. I'm good without a plan. That's my plan, no plan. Regardless, you find your sufficiency in your strategy in to live your life. That's our nature. But when I see verse three, I see it so clearly how the shepherd wants to lead me. He wants to lead me in paths of righteousness. And when I become self-sufficient into thinking that I don't need to look to God's word for my direction in life, it's always going to lead me to paths of wrongdoing, not righteousness. I love Proverbs 16, 9. Many of you probably know this verse, maybe not the reference, where it says, The heart of the man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Some of you heard the phrase, God laughs at our plans. Nothing wrong with planning. I said I like to plan. But do I, am I living in such a way that I'm like, Lord, I want to experience your restoration directionally, that when I veer off to the side and go my own way, that, Lord, in that moment, rather than just be stubborn and not see that your way is better, Lord, I want to repent of that so that I can come back into your way so that I can experience 
restoration directionally and get on the right path. What does that entail? I just want to give you a couple things. What does that entail? This daily decision to allow our shepherd to lead us. And I say it's a daily decision because that word lead in verse 3 has the idea of it's something that we need to do continually. It's a daily decision of submission. It's not like, yeah, Lord, I, I prayed four years ago for you to lead me. No, no, no. It's every day. Every day that I wake up, Lord, would you lead me in the paths of righteousness for your namesake? And so some of us may be like, I want to do that, but what does that mean practically? What does that look like? Here's what it means. First of all, you need to rest and not rush as the Lord leads you. Why do I say you need to rest and not rush? Because I don't know about you, but most of the directional decisions that I've made in my life that have led me to dead ends or led me to experience painful consequences in my life have become, been because I have been self-sufficient and I've rushed those decisions. I just want to do it. I don't care what anybody else tells me. I want to do it. I'll give you one story. And it's a somewhat ridiculous story. But I remember back in 2010 and I remember we had this vehicle. I loved this vehicle. It was a Chevy Tahoe. I loved that. I loved that SUV. Loved it. You know, it was black. I liked the color black. It was black. It had tan interior. I loved that car. It was, I bought it used, but nevertheless, I loved that. I loved that vehicle. And I won't get into all the circumstances on why I was foolish in doing this, but I made a decision that I literally reference often to Lori, my wife, of how stupid I was because I traded a Chevy Tahoe. I'm going to mention the car, and if you have that car, it's a great car, I'm not criticizing your car. Let me make all my bases clear so you don't turn me out for the rest of this message. I traded a Chevy Tahoe for a Scion XB. Like that's one of those Scion-like wagons. Yeah, I just heard somebody say, what? That's what I've been saying for eight years. And we'll get into all the reasons, but nonetheless, it was a rust decision. And I mentioned that, and I look back, and I'm like, that was such a stupid decision. Why did I do that? Because I rushed it. Now listen to me, I just gave you something that was very elementary, but let me say this, and I'm not gonna share other decisions that I have made that would be weightier that I wish I wouldn't have made that I rushed, but let me just tell you, I can look back at times in my life where I have gone my own way rather than submitting to the Lord's word in my life, and I would say, man, I rushed them rather than resting. And what did we look, like, look at last week in verse two? What does it look like when we see, what does it mean to lie down? What does it mean when the Lord makes us lie down? It literally means for us to lay flat on our back so the only way that we can look is up. Remember, it's not me sitting down and saying, okay, Lord, I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna be ready that if something doesn't work out, I can pop up real quick. No, 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 I'm lying on my back, right? I'm lying on my back. That word means stretched out, lie down, so the only place that I can look is up. That's what that word means. That's how we experience rest. 
And the way that I allow the Lord to lead me in paths of righteousness is to say, wait a minute, in any decision that I make in order to discern, is it a path of righteousness or is it a path of wrongdoing? I need to rest and not rush, which means I go to his word. That's what resting looks like. That's how I rest and I go to his word because his word provides me objective direction. His word tells me go here, not go here. Live this type of relationship, don't live this type of relationship. Serve me, don't serve someone else. Different things in our life that you cannot argue what God's word says and we don't have time to go through every one of those but listen to me, here's this phrase, I'm gonna say it and then I want us to repeat it. His word is his will. Would you say that with me? His word is his will. God's will is God's word. It is objective direction. Psalm 119, that whole psalm is about the word of God and what it is. And in verse 105, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If I am not in God's word, I cannot be led in paths of righteousness. Why? Because I am not learning what righteousness looks like. We know that, but how often do we not get in it? I mean, his word, it's his objective direction, but aren't there subjective directions as well? Who do I marry? Do I take this job? Do I take that job? Do I live here? Do I live there? Do I buy this house? Do I not buy this house? Do I rent here? Do I do this? Do I make this decision? Do I make that decision? Does my kid go to this school or not this school? Lord, we want to go to this school, but what happens if you direct this way? And there's a lot of subjective things, right, that we could say, well, God's word doesn't clearly spell it out. Well, here's how we go after subjective direction and be led in paths of righteousness. Here's what we do, we pray. You hear me say all the time, pray out loud with a list on my knees before God. We pray. We ask the Holy Spirit to lead us. He's described as our helper in John 14. And we seek godly counsels. Proverbs talks about in a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. But listen to me, when I am in God's word obeying his objective will, I'm never going to miss his subjective will. It's not gonna happen. But it takes me understanding, Lord, let me rest and not rush. Let me seek you and not be sufficient in me. It also means we need to trust and not panic. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And the promise is there. I will make your path straight. Here's a great passage of scripture in Psalm 37, 23 through 25. Let me read it to you. It says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I'm old. This is David writing this, the same person that wrote Psalm 23. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. You know why I love that passage of scripture in light of what we're talking about in Psalm 23, three? Is it saying, listen to me, you can take it to the bank. 
that when you are allowing yourself to be led in paths of righteousness, you're looking to God's word, you're praying to him about it, you're seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance, you're reaching out to godly counsel that is gonna affirm God's word in your life, you won't miss his paths. And David says, man, I was young and now I'm old and I've seen this over and over and over again. Makes me think of GPS. Told you I'm directionally challenged. Lived here two years and there's a lot of places I still don't know how to get to. And you know, when I put up that phone on my dashboard and I type in where I need to go, I'm like, man, I missed it. GPS was too late and I made the wrong turn and now I'm somewhere else. You know what's awesome? What does it do? Rerouting. Rerouting. And it always shows me how to get back on the right path. And as silly as that illustration is, man, it illustrates so beautifully how the Lord works that regardless of how far I stray, the Lord will show me how to get back on the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And what is necessary is for me to call out to God. David says in another Psalm, this poor man cried and the Lord delivered him from all of his troubles. And he'll do it, why? For his name's sake. I love the way this verse ends. Because the significance of that is to Hebrews, and it's somewhat true of our culture today, your name was precious to you because your name was your character, was your integrity. And what Our good shepherd is saying, do you want to know how true this verse is? Do you want to know how much you can count on the reality that I will restore your soul? That I will lead you in paths of righteousness? Because my name's at stake. And I'm never going to say or do anything that would cause my reputation to be harmed. You can trust today that the Lord can restore you no matter how far you've strayed. You can believe today that salvation is found in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection for you. You can be secured today that if you confess your sin, he will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sin if you strayed away. You can be secure in knowing that there's no sin that you may feel like is absolutely unforgivable and there's no way that relationship can be restored You don't need to believe that. Why? Because Jesus says, it's my namesake that is the security in knowing that there's nothing that is broken that cannot be restored. 